Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and I'm joined as ever by our news editor, Nick Bostock. Coming up, we're looking at the latest news affecting primary care. This week, we're looking at the results of a court hearing involving NHS property services and what this means for practices located in buildings owned by the organisation. We'll also be talking about the findings from a new survey by the BMA into racism in the NHS. And looking ahead to the BMA annual representative meeting in just over a week's time and the primary care motions that are up for debate. Finally, there's a bit of good news on fit notes and Jubilee honours. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, Nick, you reported this week on a legal ruling that could have some quite huge implications for GP practices in NHS property services owned buildings. First of all, can you explain a bit of the background to this? What is NHS property services and what was the case all about? Yeah, so it's, it's important to talk about what NHS property services is because it's creation about a decade ago and the way it was asked to operate is really at the root of what's become this huge problem threatening the future of GP practices that operate from state-owned premises. So NHS Property Services is wholly owned by the government, but it's a private limited company set up to take over the ownership and administration of NHS estates. And previously, primary care trusts, PCTs, owned around 3,000 properties, including the premises that some GP practices operate from, uh, as well as other buildings and land occupied by different NHS services. So NHS Property Service was incorporated in 2011, and then from April 2013, which is the moment when NHS England became a statutory organisation and PCTs were phased out, uh, it took over the ownership of these properties. And now, as part of this shift, NHS Property Services was asked to move the management of the premises onto a more commercial footing. And that really is the root of the problem that this legal case uh, is based on. So previously, as was acknowledged in the High Court in this case, some PCTs had been prepared to accept shortfalls in the recovery of service charges and had been prepared to fund this shortfall. But the basis for this often wasn't written down or formalised. It was something like a, a gentleman's agreement. And when NHS property services started asking for, in some cases, six-figure sums in service charges. That was a major shock to practices and obviously threatens their financial viability. And a dispute uh, has been going on over this for a number of years. I mean, I, I think the, the first story I wrote about the service charge dispute was about seven years ago. And there are more than 1,200 GP practices operating from premises owned by NHS property services, I think. And many have simply refused to pay and in fact say that they simply can't pay the amounts being asked of them. So that's the background to the legal challenge that we've been reporting on. So what exactly was this case and what was the ruling? There's really two elements to this case. The first being, is NHS property services within its rights to claim service charges from practices operating from premises that it owns? And then the second being effectively, if so, how much? Um, And the judge looking at this case decided to split the whole thing into two parts along those lines. Uh, And at this stage, just focused on that first question. So whether charges could be claimed. And five practices with support from the BMA were represented in the case. uh, And they were basically chosen to reflect to some extent the range of situations practices in state-owned premises may find themselves in now. And that's because there's some variation in terms of whether lease agreements are in place, the terms of leases and so on. And and the ruling ultimately was bad news for practices. The judge found against all five of them. And that means that NHS Property Services 
can claim service charges from uh, these practices. So what does it mean for other practices in NHS property services buildings now? So this is potentially devastating news for practices in these state-owned premises. Um, And that's because although GP practices can claim back rent for premises they operate from, they can only claim service charges to a limited extent. Uh, I spoke to a lawyer who specialises in healthcare property this week, uh, and and she said this could be a tipping point and that some practices may decide to to hand back their contracts. I mean, others may decide to wait for the second legal case because that's the one that will determine whether the service charges NHS property services imposed are reasonable. Um, But the point this lawyer made was that some may be tempted to call it a day now because even if their bill is reduced, uh, as she put it, half of a large amount is still a large amount. Um, NHS Property Services estimates current outstanding service charge debts across its property portfolio at close to £200 million. Mm-hmm. And that figure's rising all the time. Um, another thing to mention here is that this had been billed as a test case that would kind of determine where all practices in state-owned premises stood with regard to service charges. But the judge emphasised that all practices should take their own advice because each case can vary. Um, And she also said that practices should not refuse to to engage with NHS property services over charges or simply refuse to pay, and that each one should get into putting their case to the company about the service charges they believe that they, they, they should pay. So the BMA has highlighted that NHS property services significantly reduced the service charge fees they were asking one practice to pay during the course of these proceedings. So it does suggest that the kind of overall amount uh, that practices supposedly owe NHSPS, that could come down. I mean, that's obviously what the BMA is hoping will happen, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the BMA said that the case was not over. And clearly, with that second stage to come, likely in 12 to 18 months, we understand, um, this isn't the end of it. Uh, so the, the BMA GP committee's premises lead pointed out that um, the BMA managed to negotiate big reductions in some service charge claims. Uh, and it's it's for reasons such as you know, some of the claims not being clear, uh, perhaps because there's not always the evidence that services charged for have, have actually been provided. I think in the past, we've talked about things like, um, you know, practices being charged for things that didn't exist within the properties that they work from, those sorts of things. So, um, you know, when it when it comes to uh, negotiating exactly what's justifiable out of those service charges, there could well be some movement. But at the end of the day, uh, what we do know at this stage is that practices can be asked to pay service charges and that any uh, informal agreements and arrangements they may have had with PCTs in the past are not a, a legal defence, effectively. Right. Thanks, Nick. Um, While we're on the subject of premises, we've also published another story this week about the state of premises in primary care. This was about the results of a survey conducted by the NHS Confederation, which found that more than four in five primary care leaders say long-term underfunding of estates and infrastructure is undermining their ability to tackle the NHS care backlog. The poll found that many fear a combination of ageing buildings, run-down estate and outdated computer systems are putting patients' safety at risk. The vast majority said that they did not have enough capital funding, meaning that they couldn't deliver services in the most efficient way or transform care in line with the NHS's long-term plan. You can read the full details of that story on our website, but I just wanted to highlight the comment from one PCN clinical director, which really sums up the state of premises in primary care in England at the moment. 
this clinical director said, we're working in a 1950s tin roof health centre servicing 34,000 patients with no ability to provide fit for purpose 21st century healthcare. Our ability to meet patient expectations and political promises is impossible unless significant investment in infrastructure is made. They went on to say it is like promising the public a safe, effective modern car. And when they go to collect it, they find a 1970s Ford Escort with rusting roof, wheezing engine designed to take four people, but being required to carry 10 and with no one to service it or drive it. And I just thought I'd let you all know that because um, I think it's a really apt description of the way many GPs and other staff in primary care feel about premises where they just literally have no room at the inn to get any more people in the building. Next up, this week saw the publication of the results from a new survey by the BMA into racism in the NHS. The poll of 2030 doctors and medical students found that rampant racism has left the NHS facing an exodus of doctors from ethnic minority backgrounds. Nick, the results make for some really very depressing reading. What did they have to say and what sense do you get about how racism is impacting on GPs in particular? Yes, yeah, so the, the overall findings from the survey were that about three quarters of respondents, as you said, it's, this is of um, more than 2,000 uh, doctors and medical students uh, polled by the BMA. Uh, so about three quarters of respondents to their survey had faced racism in the past couple of years. And around three in five doctors who'd experienced racism said it had affected their well-being, causing stress, anxiety, depression, for example. A majority of doctors from black and Asian backgrounds said racism is a barrier to career progression. Uh, And the survey found that huge numbers of doctors have quit or considered quitting jobs uh, in the past couple of years in the NHS because of racism. So among doctors from black and Asian backgrounds, more than two in five had quit or considered quitting a job due to racism in the past two years alone. And when you read that breakdown of the figures across the general practice, it suggests that around a fifth of the entire GP workforce may be in that position. And and that's why the BMA, uh, as you mentioned, said that racism could trigger an exodus of doctors from the from the health service. I think one of the most damning parts of the findings is that 71 percent of doctors who personally experienced racism, didn't report it. And that's often because they had no faith anything would be done or because they feared, for example, being labelled a troublemaker. There are examples of racism from patients throughout the survey, but also very often from colleagues. And that leaves many doctors feeling they're just not operating on a level playing field. I'm just going to read out a comment from one doctor, a GP trainee who is of black African background. They said, we are treated more harshly and there's definitely a double standard. My behaviour is scrutinised twice as much. It's as if people are waiting for me to make a mistake to leap upon it. Also, I feel there's an automatic lack of trust and an expectation of incompetence. My plans will be questioned, whereas a white male doing the exact same actions will sail through with no resistance. That's just one of the examples that is cited in this report and the examples of of horrific experiences of racism that doctors and medical students have had are too many to count throughout the report. Yeah, I mean, it really did make for pretty grim reading all of that. Um, The BMA has been talking about the issue of racism, actually, to be fair, the racism facing doctors and, in fact, other healthcare professionals for a long time. And earlier this year, it warned that healthcare leaders had their head in the sand about the scale of the problem and its impact. 
What did the BMA itself have to say about the results of its survey? So um, the BMA's chair, Dr Chan Nagpal, who's a, a GP from North London, said that the NHS was built on the principle of equality of care for patients, whoever they are, but that the report, the findings that from the BMA polling show that the NHS is shamefully failing in this principle for its own doctors. Um, and he talked about the distress, uh, mental health impact of racism, warning that it was wrecking doctors' lives, as well as affecting patient care and threatening services. And the BMA set out a range of recommendations around tackling racism, ranging from steps to increase support for doctors, better reporting and data gathering, changes to training and policy, for example. And NHS England, for its part, said racism was completely unacceptable and that organisations should take a zero-tolerance approach. It said it was working with regulators such as the GMC uh, and Health Education England to reduce disproportionate representation referrals and to focus on career progression and diversity in senior roles. I mean, the, the final thing to mention, perhaps, is that the BMA report also sets out a range of examples of good practice within the NHS. So as well as examples of the awful experiences many doctors have had, there are also examples of ways of working in NHS organisations that are supportive. You touched on the, the regulation issue there. And one of the ways that racism does display itself in, in the health service and which can have an absolutely huge impact on doctors is around sort of professional regulation. I mean, we've been reporting for some time about the disproportionate number of doctors who are black or from ethnic minority backgrounds that are referred to the GMC by their employers, which you sort of touched on there. I mean, the GMC, for its part, has recognised that that's a problem. And in May last year, it set a five-year target to eliminate disproportionate referrals from employers of doctors from ethnic minority background. But despite that, there's still been cases recently that have caused some very real concern. Last year, we report on this story as well. Last year, you know, there's an employment tribunal that found that the GMC racially discriminated against a doctor who was a consultant urologist. The employment tribunal concluded that the doctor involved had received less favourable treatment than a white colleague during an investigation. He was cleared of any wrongdoing by the GMC, but he highlighted that a similar concern about a white colleague had led to no action at all while he was referred to the GMC and then subject to an investigation. And that was why the Employment Tribunal found that the GMC had discriminated against the doctor. We should say that the GMC has appealed this decision. But obviously, you know, as I mentioned, this is a real cause for concern. And the BMA has highlighted that as a key area that needs to be progressed on sorting out this kind of disproportionate referral of doctors from ethnic minorities. The other thing the report highlighted is something we've also been writing about, which is the fact that the CQC earlier this year recognised that its regulatory processes may disadvantage practices led by doctors from ethnic minorities. This is mainly due to the fact that inspections do not take account of some of the factors that disproportionately affect ethnic minority-led practices, such as being more likely to be single-handed or working in areas of high deprivation or with significant ethnic diversity. So this is another example of the regulatory system feeling as though it's stacked against ethnic minority doctors. Obviously, we should also say that CQC has said it intends to address those issues, but, you know, the reason I wanted to highlight those things is just to show that racism and racial discrimination extends outside of the actual working environment that doctors are working in. It's also been shown to exist in these external bodies that can have an absolutely huge impact on doctors' careers and their well-being. 
Looking ahead, in just over a week, we have the BMA's annual representative meeting, or ARM, and we thought we'd highlight one of the primary care motions up for debate at that event because it follows on from something we were talking about on the last news review episode. So for those who don't know, the ARM brings together representatives from BMA branches across the whole of the medical profession and the whole country. Delegates debate a range of motions that affect all doctors and branches of practice also have short sections dedicated to their specific area. So there are two general practice motions up for discussion. The first is about premises. It's basically calling for more money for premises. So nothing controversial there, given what we discussed at the start of this episode. But the second one is a bit more spicy, as it were, is about primary care networks. So you may remember on the last news podcast two weeks ago, we talked about GP's attitude towards primary care networks. Nick and I were talking about the fact that while networks are clearly the basis on which NHS England is planning to integrate care and are a key plank of how it wants primary care to work going forwards, a lot of GPs are becoming quite disenchanted with PCNs given the amount of work involved. We also highlighted that the BMA seems to be hardening its stance against PCNs. This is despite the fact that it negotiated the contract that introduced them in 2019. So it probably isn't a surprise, but the ARM at the end of the month has a really strong anti-PCN motion that's up for debate. What's the actual motion, Nick? Yeah, so the motion submitted by uh, the London Regional Council is basically says that they support GPs who are fighting to defend the GMS contract and independent contractor status. And this is obviously, you know, against a a backdrop of uh, having a health and social care secretary who's been linked with plans to nationalise general practice and who wrote the foreword to a report a little while ago that that said that the GMS contract should be phased out within a decade and that um, the independent contractor model or partnership model was uh, was in terminal decline, for example. So it's supporting doctors who, who are partners and who want to support the GP contract. And I mean, basically, it's talking about the fact that the uh, the ability to control workload or the right for GPs to control their workload is essential for the future of general practice. And as part of that, they're calling on the BMA and the GP Committee for England to organise the withdrawal of GP practices from PCNs by 2023. So obviously, that would mean pretty much immediate withdrawal at the potentially the next opt-out period. I mean, the the BMA's actually asked for another opt-out period in sometime later this year, but it hasn't hasn't necessarily been given that yet. So, you know, it could mean from, from next year, the next contract round. And they also want PCN funding to be moved into the core contract and they have they will call on GPC England to organise opposition to the imposition of the new contract, including industrial action if necessary, according to this motion. So if it's all passed, then, you know, it is a real challenge to the future of, uh, of primary care networks. I'm fairly sure um, that some bits of that motion, possibly, you know, all of it will get passed, which I think will really probably reflect the strength of feeling from delegates about having the contract imposed on GPs. I mean, bearing in mind that this is the BMA, I think that that all branches of practice will not like the precedent that's been set there about a contract being imposed on GPs. And we saw what happened when a contract was imposed on junior doctors in the past. But the time of it all is really quite interesting, isn't it, as well, because it comes days before integrated care systems come into being. And, you know, as we've said before on the podcast, PCNs are really key to this whole vision of how integrated care systems are going to work and how integrated care is going to work at the place where most patients will experience it, i.e. out in the community. So, 
you know, if the BMA ends up with a mandate to be very anti-PCN, as it were, and this starts to filter down to frontline GPs who feel that the downsides of being part of a network are really outweighing any potential benefits. I think, you know, the leaders of these new integrated care systems could find they may be facing some real challenges with delivering on that integration agenda. Finally today, we just have time for our regular good news slot. And this week, we have two bits of good news, which must be a first on this podcast. So firstly, fit notes. Last week, the government laid new legislation that will come into effect on the 1st of July and mean that in England, Scotland and Wales, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists and pharmacists will also be allowed to sign fit notes. At the moment, it's only doctors who can sign off on fit notes, and these can take up a lot of GPs' time. Latest figures from NHS Digital show that GPs in England issued 2.9 million fit notes in the three months from October to December 2021 alone. The change in law won't mean that every nurse, physiotherapist, occupational therapist and pharmacist will be issuing fit notes, but rather those professionals with the competence to do so and within their scope of practice. And apparently there's going to be new training and guidance to help support them to do this. And our second bit of good news, uh, we've obviously recently had the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and as part of that weekend, she announced her birthday honours. As ever, there were a number of GPs who were recognised for their contribution to the NHS general practice and their local communities. We've written a story about them all on our website and you can find the link to that in the description for this episode. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. We're back next week when I'm speaking to Professor Martin Marshall, who's chair of the Royal College of GPs, ahead of the college's annual conference, which is taking place in London in association with Wonka, the World Organisation of Family Doctors European Conference this year. Do join me then, but in the meantime, you can keep up with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com.